This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, there is so much that the Bible has to say about what we gain as sinners when we are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved, we're redeemed, we're justified, we're sanctified. But one of the benefits of salvation that we rarely talk about in depth is our adoption in Christ. As Ephesians chapter one says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or as Paul reminded the Galatians in chapter four, when the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What does it mean to be adopted by God? That's what we're going to be exploring today with Dr. David Garner, who is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. And we're going to be discussing his great book. It's called Sons in the Son, The Riches and Reach of Adoption in Christ. Dr. Garner, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Now, you hear a lot of people, I'm sure you hear a lot of this as, as much as I do, where they talk about, we're all just children of God. We're all children yes. of God, brothers and, and, and sisters together. Why do you think it is so important in light of that to understand this doctrine of adoption? Wow. It's a wonderful question. And, you know, the truth of the matter is we are the, the brothers and sisters in God's family because of the Lord Jesus. And there is rich, rich truth there. But one of the, I think, perhaps one of the most understated dimensions of the gospel is a full grasp on what it means to be adopted into God's family. You know, I think oftentimes the, the whole notion of adoption is read through our contemporary lenses where we think of a, an orphan child and uh, the wonderful initiative that parents take to bring that child into the family, and there's wonderful truth of mercy and, and even grace manifested in that. But the doctrine of adoption in the New Testament Testament, I think, is much even fuller and more robust than that. And if I could just comment about it briefly. Um, The uh, first century Roman imperial um, context is Paul's context when he writes, and adoption was actually something that was undertaken by a Roman emperor. And that Roman emperor would look at his offspring and say, none of my biological sons are worthy to take on my name, to take on my kingdom, and to carry it on into perpetuity. I want to find somebody of great character, of great quality, of excellence, and that is the son whom I will adopt who will actually take on and reign in my kingdom. And so effectively what Paul is doing is he's bringing together the extraordinary reaches of God's grace reaching us in our sin, but he's actually putting us in a place of honor and prestige and actually putting us in a place of co-reigning with Jesus Christ, our elder brother, 
And we enjoy the full bounty and blessing, not only of having been redeemed from our sin, but being placed in a situation of extraordinary privilege, honored status as the very sons of God in the beloved son, as you read from Ephesians 1. That is great. That is so beautiful, because what a difference when we merely reduce it to, now we're members of God's family, which is about as far as it gets, I think, among a lot of Christians who discuss this. Well, now you're part of God's family. No, you're saying it's way beyond that. It's much more honorable than that. Absolutely. In fact, I would say that even in our contemporary society, as much as we honor and appreciate families who have adopted children, I think there's an unfortunate sense in our corporate mindset that an adopted child is not quite on the level with a biological child. Now, I think that's a tragic notion, but I do think it's a shared one, even though it's not often articulated. What is interesting about the gospel's notion of adoption is that adoption is the highest status of sonship possible. Mm. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, that's not the way we think about it when we talk about human adoption, for sure. Now, what about the term? I can't pronounce this. I know I will do violence to it if I try, because I'm not a Greek scholar of any sort. But what about the Greek word for adoption should we understand to get a better comprehensive understanding of what's going on here. All right. Well, the term is actually a compound term from two Greek words. One is the noun huios, which is the word for son, and then thesia, which is the second half of the word adoption, huia thesia, actually comes from the Greek uh, Greek verb tithemi, which means to place or to put. So literally, and just if you're looking at it lexically, the term means to be placed or or situated as a son. Hmm. Um, Now, that's just a sort of a, a crass definition. I think what gives adoption its significance is the way in which through the lenses of the Old Testament and then borrowing by analogy from first century Roman imperial adoption, Paul says this is a wonderful metaphor to describe who it is that we are in relation to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father. Hmm. And so the language of being put and placed as a son is purely of God's grace. And what is different than that from first century adoption, God didn't choose us because we were excellent. He chose us because Jesus was excellent. And it is in view of his excellence that we are accounted as God's excellent, or if I could put it this way, his beloved sons in whom he is well pleased. Right. Now, when you say that phrase, people will remember the baptism of Jesus. But what about the difference between the sonship of the son and the sonship of the believer? Well, so we would want to make a stark difference. Of course, Jesus is the eternal son of God made flesh. And Jesus is unique in that way. There's no one else like him. And, of course, in his own life, you know, I remind you that through Jesus' own life, he had, as Hebrews puts it, he had to learn obedience. He is a human, just like we are. Even though eternal Son of God, he is also flesh and blood, just like we are. And so in that process of obedience... He is, even at his baptism, and then as you'll see reflected at the Mount of Transfiguration, God is looking at that son, and he is saying, on the basis of his faithfulness to my covenant, he is the excellent son. He is the 
the, the, the one who has fully passed the test, if I could put it that way. He is the son who has demonstrated unfailing obedience to me as the father. And it is by that definition that Jesus is then, he takes on a whole new status of sonship in his resurrection. And in God's grace, we're included in him in that resurrected and exalted status. Wow. And for so many, so many Christians, I think the question would be, why in the world would God do what he did to adopt us in such a way that we would take such a high place that we don't deserve to merely to be right. saved is amazing you know to be right. to be allowed into heaven because of Christ's uh, you know atonement for us and his resurrection from the dead and his imputed righteousness that's how we enter heaven that would be enough but what about sure. the, the beauty of being able to rule and reign one day with Christ what are your thoughts I, on that uh, well, you know, it's almost, uh, it almost takes your breath away. Uh, you know, one of the things that so strikes me about the way in which the gospel is presented to us, the words of the Old and New Testaments as it relates to God's love for us as his people and his focus upon us, his commitment to pursue us, his, permit, his commitment to redeem us from the pit, or to use Paul's language in Colossians 1, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then to use the language of Ephesians 2, that we are seated with this son in the heavenly places. I mean, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's really beyond description to think about that kind of grace to us who are not only wholly undeserving, we have done absolutely everything to, if I could put it somewhat crassly, to anti-deserve it. Yes. I mean, we've done everything to oppose the God of heaven. He said, I'm going to love you anyway, and I am going to grant you not only the grace of forgiveness, but the grace of an extraordinary privilege. Ah, oh, so true. We were once enemies of God, and he drew us near by his grace. It is so beautiful. I never get tired of hearing it. And what I want to do when we come back from this break is to get into the meat here of what Paul had to say about our adoption in Christ, because definitely there are a lot of texts here that we could deal with and learn more from Dr. David Garner, my guest and author of Sons in the Sun, The Riches and Reach of Adoption in Christ. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. 
That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. I am loving this discussion about our adoption in Christ. The name of the book, Sons in the Sun, by Dr. David Garner, who is joining us, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. I have to confess, Dr. Garner, I started getting really teary-eyed when you started talking about this. Yeah, it's amazing. It is. You know, anybody who says that theology does not produce emotion doesn't understand Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. That let's, is absolutely true. Yeah. Now, let's talk some about the Pauline discussions in the New Testament about adoption. There are a number of key texts I know, but where would you begin if you're in a classroom and you're teaching on this doctrine? What sorts of texts would you begin with? Well, you know, the the, the simple truth is there are actually only five places in the New Testament where the term uh, adoption, huiathesia, appears. And, you know, it might be tempting, in fact, I think arguably in the history of the church it's been tempting to say adoption must not be very important because it doesn't show up very often. But I think just with even a cursory glance of the way in which Paul uses the term and the scope of reference that he gives it, the the weight that he gives it um, in the five places that it appears, you quickly realize that quantity is not an appropriate measure of importance. And if I could just begin, if you're asking where would I begin, I actually could begin in any of the five places that it appears, but I think maybe logically we would begin in the text that you quoted at the beginning of your program, from Ephesians chapter 1. Um, That particular passage, the Apostle Paul in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, he is, you know, it's it's one of those places, just as you put it, that Paul is, I, I can just envision him as these words are flowing from his lips. Um, he's on his face. I mean, he is overwhelmed with God's grace. And in verses 3 through 14, which begin with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praising God as he contemplates the vision of heaven, the vision of redemption that God has given him by his Holy Spirit. And situated very early in that section in Ephesians 1, 3 and following is the word adoption. What is interesting is that Paul lays adoption there as the very goal of God's entire redemptive purposes planned before the foundation of the world. So if I could put it a little bit differently, adoption was in God's 
heart and purpose before he said, let there be light. Wow. So in other words, his love for you and me and the exalted status to which he intended to put us was in his very heart before he even created the world. And adoption is a term for Paul that embraces the full scope of what it means to be the object of God's divine affection in his elective grace, even before the foundation of the world. That's where I would begin. That's a great place to begin. And yet you have people today who will say God doesn't know the future and God just kind of understands history as it unfolds like the rest of us. Why is it significant, as you're talking about here, that we were predestined to be adopted before the foundation of the world? Lots of reasons, and it's a good point you make. Uh, you know, if, if, the, if we read the Scriptures, we find the God of Scripture being a God who is in control of all things. And I would simply want to put it this way. The God who is the one in whom we hope for our salvation, if he is not the creator and the sustainer of all things, we have no grounds to believe that he is also sufficient to be our Savior. And what we have, even in the language of Ephesians 1, is that God's sovereignty and his absolute authority, it's a loving authority, it's a fatherly, gentle, loving compassion, passionate authority that he exercises uh, in history on behalf of his people. And in fact, I would suggest that the Apostle Paul, both in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, situates redemption in the context of God as creator and sustainer and consummator of all things. And so our hope is in a God who is at the beginning and the middle and at the end. And frankly, without that, we have no ultimate hope of redemption. Very good, very good. What about Galatians chapter 4? There's a lot to discuss in that particular text, but this is uh, one where, where Paul talks about because you are sons, you know, that God sent forth his son so that you might receive adoption as sons, and because you are, God has sent the spirit of his son in, so you can cry, Abba, Father. And then goes on to say, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What about the importance of the distinction here between slave and son? Because people will point out, well, as Christians, we're slaves to righteousness, right? So how are we to understand that? Well, so um, this would take several hours to unpack fully. I'll try to do it as, pers- uh, as, as briefly as I can here. Sure. Um, Paul in Galatians 3 to 4 is making a contrast between the age of the law and the age of the Son of God, the age of the Spirit. And he is, even though salvation has always been by grace through faith, in the Old Testament, the law was very prominent. And because the Savior had not come, on the stage of history, those people who belonged to God were looking forward to a Messiah to come. And in the sense of history itself, because the Savior had not yet arrived on the stage, there was a bondage um, that the law brought curse, it brought condemnation. But when Christ come and came and satisfied the demands of the law and bore the curse of the law on our behalf, he released us from the curse of the law. And so what Paul has in mind when he's making that contrast between slaves and sons, he's, he's talking about it first in the context of redemptive history, um, that, that God's people 
Um, even though they've always been saved by grace, the Old Testament saints were looking to the Christ to come. You and I live in the age in which the full bounty of provision has been met because Christ has satisfied his heavenly Father's demands entirely. If I could put a little different twist on this, look how you already read how the Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. This is one of the sweetest components of adoption, and I would love if I could just to mention it briefly. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, the, the, you know, when in, in Jesus' life, the context in which Abba Father was on his lips was actually at the greatest point of crisis in his own life. He is in the garden, and he's praying to his Father that, if possible, could this cup pass from me? but not my will be done, but yours be done. And it is in the context of Jesus' greatest crisis as a human on earth that he cries out, Abba, Father. Mm. Well, in Galatians 4, and again in Romans 8, where we see that very same thing, the Apostle Paul reminds us that God's purposes, even for us as his children, is to bring us through very, very dark places, that we will walk through the desert. And it is in the context of our suffering, as we're looking forward to glory, it's in the context of our suffering that we come to understand in the deepest sense of the word, God is our Father. So we cry out, Abba, Father, in our suffering, even as our elder brother Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, in his. And God's purposes for our suffering is the very place where he shows us to be the gentle, loving, heavenly Father who promise us, promises us eternal blessing. Oh, I'm so glad that you explained that because that is, makes it even more significant. That's another one we can just pass over very quickly. Oh, good. God's now our daddy. So what do you make, though, when Christians will say things like, that's really a verse that tells us that God is our daddy. Now, certainly he's our Heavenly Father and has care and concern and love for us. But is that being a little cheeky, taking that verse? Yeah, I I would just simply say the word Abba, as has actually been demonstrated, does not mean only the notion of some sort of childlike daddy figure. In fact, I would argue that as you understand adoption and see how it is actually a term of extraordinary ordinary privilege, that that calling God our Father is not to be treated with some sort of childish, foolish flippancy, but extraordinary sense of privilege and honor, and that even as Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, that we are to pray even as Jesus did, calling God his Father. That is a, it is extraordinarily intimate, but it is not a context of flippancy. Yeah, that's well said. What about Romans 8, where Paul is talking about the creation groaning and, and one day, you know, everything will be made right, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But he makes sure. this reference to groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So there in that passage, you have Paul talking about adoption as something to come. How should yeah. we understand that? Because we've been adopted, but we will be adopted. How do we understand sure. that? Great, great question. I'm glad you raised it. So both in that very chapter, actually, Romans eight fifteen to 17, and again in verse 23 that you just referenced, we have a, a, what we would call in theology the already of adoption, that we have the spirit of adoption, 
but we have the not yet that we await in which the full essence of our adoption will be realized. And interestingly, there in verse 23, Paul describes that adoption as the redemption of our bodies, yeah. which is another way of saying our adoption is exactly in the same at the same time of, as our resurrection. Right. So that there is, just as for Jesus, that the full bounty of privilege that became his as the obedient son who suffered, died, and then was raised on the third day, and he entered into this great status of sonship as a human son that he had not yet attained, even though he's the eternal son, we too, in our resurrection, enter into the full bounty of privilege where there's no more suffering. It is full glory, full bounty, full privilege, full reign, full rule. And we enjoy that only at the transformation of our bodies, even as Jesus entered in his own resurrection to the transformation of his own. Ah, great. Well, a wonderful book, Sons in the Sun, The Riches and Reach of Adoption in Christ by Dr. David Garner. And it was an honor to have you, Dr. Garner. I love talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We're back on Janet Mefford Today. There is no denying the influence of worldview on behavior. For centuries, as my next guest notes, the Judeo-Christian view of morality was predominant in the Western world, and along with that predominant Christian worldview came lower levels of almost every kind of social pathology. But what about now? Well, we know we're in a downward spiral, and that's because we have dismissed the nature and value of God and God's wisdom. As Proverbs 1-7 reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Is there any way to get it back? We're going to talk about it today with Richard Simmons III, who is founder and executive director of the Center for Executive Leadership, a not-for-profit faith-based ministry in Birmingham, Alabama. His book that we're going to be discussing is called Wisdom, Life's Great Treasure. And so good to have you here, Richard. How are you? Thank you, Janet. I'm doing well, thanks. Very good. All right, let's talk about wisdom. I I think it's great you say in the book that you've really become intrigued with the concept of wisdom. I agree with you. I am endlessly fascinated with wisdom and what the Bible has to say about it. How did wisdom become so important to you? What made you interested in the topic? Well, it really began uh, a number of years ago when I was, I think, 12 or 13, and I, I first read uh, in Proverbs about just the incredible value uh, of wisdom. You know, in, in Proverbs 3.15, it says she's more valuable than uh, jewels. Nothing you desire compares with it. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of intrigued me. And as time has gone by, uh, I have really been a seeker of wisdom. And what led me ultimately to write this book is that in the work that I do, uh, it's a men's ministry. I work, we work with primarily with businessmen and professionals. Um, is that 
it's become quite apparent that that modern life is is, is very complicated and it creates a lot of confusion and and for so many people life's just not working real well and they don't know why and they don't know what to do hmm. and so um you know I, I thought that i would would come up with a book that could really point people towards uh, what I would consider to be a solution. And if you look at, at, at the word wisdom, if you look at its its actual root uh, meaning, uh, it comes from a Hebrew word, chakmah, which means to have a skill or expertise in living this life. Hmm. And it leads you to wonder, you know, what is that really worth to you, particularly if, if life's not working well, uh, to be able to develop and gain a, a true expertise in living this life and that's really kind of what led me to, to writing the book. I, I wanted to give uh, parents uh, who, you know, that we, we try to teach our children about the, the, the Bible. We try to teach them morality. But I think a real responsibility we have as parents is to teach our children to be wise. Mm-hmm. But in, 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 in the bottom line is the, I, I wrote this for anybody who really wants to figure out how life works well. And uh, and that's kind of how I uh, came to the uh, decision to, to write it. Well, that's great, because we certainly need more wisdom, Christians as well. Uh, you say that wisdom begins with a true interpretation of the world and how we should live in it. And this is so relevant to where we are in our culture right now, because we are being asked increasingly, as you know, Richard, to embrace fiction. Well, right. this is a man, but he now identifies as a woman, so you have to call him she, or well, any <laughs> any number of insane things that are being forced on our throats now. What happens when you lose wisdom and when you have a view of the world that is not connected to reality? Well, I mean, how do you how do you really interpret where we are right now? Uh, well, first of all, that is an excellent question, and I think it's it's a uh, it's a key issue. Uh, because a major part of wisdom is having the ability to discern which ideas in life are true and which ones are false. I mean, yes. that's kind of where, how philosophy, philosophy came about. Right. Because to live today, uh, or really any time in, in history, but to live with false ideas and false assumptions about life, I mean, can be truly deadly. In fact, Blaise Pascal, who you know, many consider to be one of the most brilliant people to ever live, says that the reason that people struggle with life so much is because that they have false ideas about reality. And therefore, you have to uproot these false ideas and replace them with wisdom. And in the book, I talk about the two of the, the probably the, the best-selling books of all time. One came from Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The other one by Scott Peck, who wrote The Road Less Travel. Yes. And both of them believe that our view of reality is like a map. And that map will help navigate the terrain of life. And both believe that it is absolutely critical that our maps be accurate, because if they're false and inaccurate, you're going to be lost in this life. In fact, Jesus even talks about it himself when he says, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. uh, And when your eye is clear, you know, you basically your life will be full of light. But if your eye is not clear... Uh, your life will be full of darkness. And what he's talking about there is your perception of reality, that it can be either rooted in what is true or it can be rooted in what is false. That's right. So what what connection would you make between a culture now in America where we are increasingly without any foundation, we just make it up as we go, as we're seeing, especially in some of these social issues? Why? What is the connection between the worldview and the problems that we're seeing in our society how do you assess the problem and also the solution? 
Well, I mean, you can go pretty much to any area uh, of life and recognize that uh, uh, to have these false ideas is leading us into a direction uh, that is creating, I mean, I, I can't think of any uh, better way to put it than is chaos. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- think about just look at the one issue, uh, human sexuality. Right. Um, I mean, you think about it, sex was God's idea, uh, and you have to ask, what did he have in mind when he gave it to us? Right. And um, the Bible gives a clear understanding of what human sexuality is. Uh, but today, you know, we have truly just kind of jettisoned that, and we have a truly subjective view of, of human sexuality where ultimately you make your decisions uh, on sex based on your feelings, your desires, your, um, you know, your passions, and has nothing to do with some outer um, uh, moral standard that's been handed down to us by God. Yeah, and I think of the whole concept of self-autonomy, which is sort of driving what we're seeing yeah. right now. That in and of itself is a lie, because you act as if whatever I want to do doesn't affect anybody. Well, abortion affects a human being. Another person is killed when you choose abortion. Or if right. you talk about, I, I want to have uh, this polyamorous situation in my family, but I have a little kid, the kid will be affected, the, the child that you have in the house, or whatever it is. We act as if what we do in the name of our own self-fulfillment sometimes has no effect on the rest of humanity and what about that aspect that is being forgotten yeah i think that i think you're right on target and i think this also is a result of the um uh, the modern view of freedom yes you see most people see that real freedom uh, they see it in negative terms freedom from restrictions freedom from restraints um you know it's to be able to follow your desires and passions wherever they leave but to be truly free Requires you have to be uh, requires at times for you to have to be able to say no. You have to cross your will, uh, and you can think of any area of life. But what modern people don't seem to realize is that freedom without restrictions leads to chaos. Yes. I mean, it causes you to crash and burn. Because right. freedom is not a lack of restrictions; it's finding the right restrictions that fit your your being, what leads to harmony, and which leads to peace and joy in your life. And that that there there, there are times and places where basically you have to say no. You have to cross your will. Absolutely. So there's a difference then between freedom, as a lot of people understand it, and anarchy. That's correct. And that's that what we're correct. seeing. Yes, just I want to do what I want to do without any restraints, as if that leads to happiness. And yet look at the statistics that we see on depression, on the breakdown of the family. What about the connection between that worldview and the dire situation a lot of people are in personally, the suicide rates, it's horrible. It is horrible. And I, I really love what uh, author Oz Guinness says about this. He says, you know, if you think about freedom, he says freedom is not so much a choice as it is a right choice, a good choice, a wise choice. He says that when everything is permissible, no one is truly free. He says, so it's ironic, but not accidental, that millions of people in the land of the free, talking about America, are in recovery are in recovery groups from one addiction to another. Goodness, that's so true though if you think about it and you look at what's going on all around us. Well, we're going to take a very quick break when we come back more with Richard Simmons the third his book Wisdom, Life's Great Treasure. We'll come back right after this.
Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Hi, this is Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, and I want to send a big thank you for standing for life to you. Because of listeners like you in 2020, Preborn sponsored over 45,000 free ultrasound sessions to women in need, saved over 31,000 babies, and prayed with over 6,500 women to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. The battle rages on in 2021 at an even greater level. And our goal is to give Planned Parenthood the biggest competition ever. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMafford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Richard Simmons III. He is the founder and executive director of the Center for Executive Leadership and author of the book we're discussing. It's called Wisdom, Life's Great Treasure. So I was quoting from Proverbs 1-7. I know, Richard, you said that you love Proverbs as well. It really is a wonderful book of the Bible. But this famous verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some translations will say knowledge. Isn't that where it all begins? The fear of the Lord. When you see a society that's in total chaos and losing its moorings at every turn, isn't that the fundamental place to start is saying the fear of the Lord has has been eroded, and that's why you're not wise? Uh, There's no doubt about that, uh, Janet. And, you know, when you really think through, and I've spent a lot of time uh, talking with people who are much wiser than I am about this actual um, a verse about fearing God and what that really entails. And not only is fearing Him, but I think this is crucial as well. It's fearing His Word. It's fearing what He has said. It's understanding um, the fact that there are certain principles in life. For instance, the, my, probably one of my all-time favorite and the one that I think has such an impact uh, on life is the law of sowing and reaping. And he makes it real clear. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man or woman sows, this he shall also reap. And he's making it clear. Don't, don't mock me. Don't mock my word. Right. And, I, you know, so that's where it all starts, is having reverence for who God is, 
have a healthy fear and respect for him and have a healthy fear and respect for what he has said. Good. That's excellent. That It's absolutely critical that we start there. So how do you advise people to move in the direction of wisdom, to understand the fear of the Lord? Well, it you know, that, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's a, a very good question. And one of the things that I, I begin to see with older adults is they get kind of frustrated because they feel like the uh, the wisdom train has kind of left the station and they weren't on it. <laughs> yeah. But but what I tell people is that um, you know throughout Proverbs that you see um, that word wisdom is personified. Uh, for instance, in uh, Proverbs three fifteen that I quoted just a minute ago, you know it says she is more valuable than jewels, right. and. Uh, I don't think people recognize that the wisdom of God is a person. I mean, we're told in in the book of Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So God is the source of it all. And therefore, I think the ultimate wisdom is found in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the light of the world. He says, I came in the world to enlighten every man and every woman. And so any per- this is where it all starts, is in a relationship with Him. And when you enter a relationship with Him, you will find yourself on a path that leads to wisdom. Very good. Very good. Now, when you talk about some of these essays on the art of intentional living, you cover a lot of different aspects of life about business and career wisdom and relational wisdom, financial wisdom. What about in personal growth and development? Because clearly a lot of people go right for, what about my daily life? How does wisdom help me in my daily life? I'm sure you've heard that a lot of times from people you've talked to, but what about the application of wisdom in that arena? That's that's very good. Yeah, I I spend a good bit of time talking about personal growth and development um, because one of the things that I've found, and, and your listeners, I think many of them will be able to relate to this, is that for so many people, there truly is a gap in their lives between what they have dreamed of and aspired to, and then the life that they actually live. And that's why I point out in the book that you have to be intentional if you want to grow or develop any area of your life. And what I mean by that is you have to plan for it, and then you have to execute the plan. You see, most people just, they have great intentions for their lives, Janet, but they don't have a plan to really get there. Right. Uh, I talk also a good deal about that. This is pretty interesting as well, the basic equation to achievement in life. And it's skill multiplied times the effort you expend, and the effort you expend is really defined as the time you're willing to spend on a task. And the effort you expend ultimately is determined by self-discipline, and that's a character trait that you have to develop. Because this is what's so interesting. Most people think that the people who do, do so well in life are, are the ones that have the most talent and ability. But the research is very clear that great achievers in life are not the most skilled, but those who have the most self-discipline. Yes. I talk a good bit about priorities, um, because how easy it is to have disordered priorities in your life. This is a big part of personal growth, because in this world that we live in, with social media and television uh, and what have you, with Netflix, it's so easy to spend our lives on the trivial. Yes. And then the, the last thing I talk about in, this, in the, uh, the section on personal growth and development is the power of having a focused life. Um, it's kind of like light. You know, light in general, diffused life doesn't have much power, but if you concentrate life, light through a magnifying glass, uh, you know, you can start a fire. But when light is even more focused, like in a laser, it can cut through steel. 
Absolutely. Yeah, when you talk about the need for uh, self-discipline and self-control, th- a lot of people struggle with that. They say, I, I just, I want to do this. Why can't I just jump in with both feet and do it? I think of people, for example, I had a friend years ago who was pretty talented in music, not a, a project, prodigy or anything like that, but with the hardest worker, absolute hardest worker, would practice and practice. But there is something about an extreme commitment to hard work and the self-discipline of practicing, if you're a musician, for example, that can get you way beyond somebody who's a natural talent who just doesn't have any interest in practicing. How have you seen that work in people's lives when they actually do have that kind of self-discipline? What kind of difference it makes? Well, it's, uh, I mean, you, you see it almost in any arena of life. Uh, those who really put a lot of effort into seeing their marriage grow. You know, I, I talk a lot about, about, about how you have to be intentional in marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, because people get this when it comes to maybe their career or developing a skill or getting in physical shape, but they never think about marriage, which is the most important human relationship you have, because I think most people assume that their, their, their great romantic love is going to carry them through life and as you and everybody else knows, it doesn't. Right. And therefore, you have to, be, again, intentionally work on your marriage, uh, particularly during the years when you're raising your kids. You have to plan on spending time together. I mean, you almost have to, when you have kids that you're, uh, you're raising, you almost have to plan on when you'll have physical intimacy. Uh, you need to read books on marriage. You need to intentionally, what are some ways that I can love my spouse? And most people would not think of what we're talking about relates to marriage, we would think, oh, it makes sense when it comes to my work. It makes sense when it comes to I'm trying to become a better golfer. But, you know, I shouldn't have to work on my marriage. (laughs) That's false. No, it is false because it's a long-term relationship and there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of back and forth. And you got two sinners in the same house and sometimes a lot of little (laughs) sinners running around. (laughs) So, yeah, absolutely. That's also true. And it shows really what you're saying, that there is wisdom to be applied in all of life. It isn't just, yeah, it isn't just one area. Now, another thing that you mentioned, which I think is good, is care of the soul. How does oh, yeah. this issue of wisdom apply when it comes to the care of the soul? Well, you know, I think most people, uh, unfortunately, in this life are very focused. We, we have, there are really two dimensions of life, um, if you want to look at it that way. We have what's called our, you know, our outer um, public life, um, which is so easy uh, for us to uh, be addicted to we, and, and spend so much time uh, caring about. Uh, you know, this is the, when you think about your outer life, your public life, that's, what the, that's the life that people see. It's the, it's the part of your life that's most measurable. It's the part of your life that is, is always pulling at you and, and demands time, where the care of your soul, when it gets right down to it, um, I don't think people see the need to care for it. Um, but we're called to protect the soul because so much of our life flows from it. Right. Uh, you think about the things of the soul. Uh, Peter tells us we're, we're continually straying like sheep, um, and now we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Yes. And so our inner private life is where we do our thinking, our reflecting. It's where our, our ideas are formed, our priorities are set. And, you know, the Apostle Paul makes a great point. He says, you know, outwardly, he says, our bodies are wasting away, and yet we spend so much time focusing on the outer life. And he says, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. 
And Janet, one of the things that, that I talk about that I think is the most important for the care of the soul is, is the, the, the role that gratitude plays in having an impact on the soul. I think I have a whole chapter on that. Very, very good. Well, there's a lot packed into this book. Highly recommended. Wisdom, Life's Great Treasure by Richard Simmons III from the Center for Executive Leadership. So good to talk to you, Richard. Thank you so much for being with us. Janet, thank you so much. All right. God bless you. And thanks again for being here. Thank you, too, for listening to Janet Mefford today. We appreciate you each and every day tuning in. I can't thank you enough. God bless you. Thanks a lot for listening.